Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Continuing our series through the book of Revelation this morning. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you'll find this text on page 1029. I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do give you our thanks for another beautiful Sunday morning. Lord, to see the colors at full peak, it's a a stunning spectacle. We know that it comes from you. Lord, we thank you for each individual that's here. Thank you for gathering us as a church family. Lord, would you bless each person richly as we study your word together now? Pray that you would drive today's text home into our hearts. Might this text help us to become a more courageous people as we move forward in this culture committed to your word and your truth. We pray that your spirit would minister to ours in this time, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's text is actually a letter and The opening verse tells us who the letter was written to and who it was written by. So looking at the first, we see it was written to the church in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was a city in western Turkey, which sat high upon a hill. The city was built in the 3rd century B.C., but in 133 B.C., it voluntarily joined itself uh, to the Roman Empire. And this city became very proud of its Roman identity. They had all kinds of temples dedicated to false gods in this city. But once they joined Rome, they built another temple dedicated to the emperor of Rome. And inside this temple, there was a great big statue in his honor. And every year, the citizens of Pergamum would visit this temple they would burn a pinch of incense at the, at the feet of the statue, and they would declare aloud, Caesar Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. Of course, there was one group in town that could not make this statement. That was the Christians in town. They couldn't say Caesar Kurios because they affirmed Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. And the city of Pergamum would not abide this apparent rebellion. And so, beginning in the 70s AD, which was about 20 years before the writing of Revelation, they forbade the Christian faith from the city. Now, what that meant is that the church there in Pergamum was now a church of outlaws. Uh, Wonderful, godly, courageous outlaws, but outlaws nonetheless. Life became very difficult for the church in Pergamum. This church needed a letter to help them find encouragement and to persevere in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. And that's exactly what they receive in today's text. Now looking at the second part of verse 12, we see who they receive the letter from. 
It says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. Now here's who's, who it's from. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we've heard this language before. It appeared in chapter 1, verse 16. In that passage, the Apostle John was given a vision of Christ in all of his heavenly glory. And here was the description of Christ. Verse 16 said, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. There's the language. And then his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so Christ is the one who has that large two-edged sword. This letter then was written to the church in Pergamum, a church of Christian outlaws, and it was written by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are a lot of Greek words translated sword in our English Bibles. The one translated sword here refers to the biggest and the most powerful kind of sword. So if you're familiar with the Bible, okay, it's, it's like the sword that God put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out of it after they sinned. You remember that massive, flaming, rotating sword? That's the word translated sword in today's text. And it's a sharp, two-edged sword. That speaks to the, the power of this sword. With it, Christ can defend his people, and he can slay all of his enemies. Friends, I believe Christ introduces himself in this language at the start of the letter here in order to offer a direct challenge to the claims of Pergamum and to affirm the claims of the church in Pergamum. So the city declared that Caesar is Lord. The church declared Christ is Lord. And now Christ writes this letter to the church in this city, and he says, I who speak to you now, I am he who wields the great two-edged sword. Yes, I am Lord. He asserts himself here as the Lord who rises above all earthly lords, the king above all earthly kings. We ought not to fear the government's sword. We ought to fear Christ's sword. He is supreme over all. And he is supreme over the church as well. And now in his position as Lord of all, and especially as head of his church, he will now speak to the church of Pergamum. And he will offer his assessment of this church. His words here are, are applicable to all churches in all times, especially to those who find themselves in a culture that is hostile to their faith. So let's look at what Christ has to say to his church now. First, as head of the church, he wants her to know that he knows everything about her. Look at verse 13. First words he says, I know where you dwell. He's the head of the church, and he knows his church. He knows everything about her. Our Lord's knowledge is infinite because he is infinite as the eternal Son of God. He knows the church better than the church knows herself. And here he explains that he knows where the church was conducting her ministry. Now look at the description he gives of that place. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Wow. So the New Testament scriptures frequently speak of our fallen world as being under the sway of the devil. But here, Christ goes a step further. And he says to the church in Pergamum, you aren't just under, the, under this, this sin-cursed world, under the devil's sway, but you are actually in his throne room. He is acknowledging here that the church in Pergamum was, was living in especially difficult circumstances. It was so oppressive for the Christians there. It was, they were so hostile to the Christian faith. In fact, one of the most prominent images in the city of Pergamum at that time, it was the image of the serpent. They had it etched onto the temples of their false gods. They even had it stamped on their coins. And again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the image of a serpent is also an image of the devil. There in the Garden of Eden, Satan took the form of a serpent when he tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And then later on in the book of Revelation, the devil will be called that old serpent. So the serpent is an image of the devil, and that image was everywhere in the city of Pergamum. It was on their temple, so everywhere the Christians looked, they saw this devilish imagery. When they reached into their pockets to pull out some change, they had the devil's image on their coins. This was truly an oppressive environment for Christians to be living in. Their faith was illegal. Temples to false gods. The devil's own image everywhere they looked. They were in a hard place. And Christ knew it. He says, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. But you know what, friends? This was also exactly where this church was supposed to be. You see, the scriptures also teach us that our Lord is sovereign over every detail of our lives. And that includes where we are born, what time in history we are born in, all of the circumstances that we will meet in life. He's sovereign over all of it. Our, our lives are lived out by divine appointment. And so, yes, Christ knew that they were dwelling where Satan's throne is, and Christ had ordained that that be so. You'll also remember the great commission that Christ gave to the church just before his ascension. He said, go into all the nations, all places, and make disciples for me. Don't just go to the easy places. Go to the hard places, too. Go to the devil's strongholds. Make my disciples there in those places. And let my glory shine through all the brighter because of it. You see... This church was in a very, very difficult place, but they were there by divine appointment. And they were right to be there. They were right to labor and to serve and to witness and to make disciples in the midst of a culture that despised everything they stood for. Friends, what an encouragement that thought is to all of us as we live in a culture not exactly like Pergamum's, but certainly a culture that is generally hostile to biblical Christianity. 
And as we look at the, the trajectory of our world, it doesn't seem to be moving closer to biblical Christianity, but continually farther away from it. And I know for some believers that can be a very troubling thought, but let it comfort you to know that God chose you for this time and in this, for this moment. God chose that you would be born into this world, and He has suited you just for such a time as this. And he will give you all the grace that you need to persevere in your Christian faith without compromise in these days. He has prepared our church for ministry in this city, in 21st century America. And he will, he will, by his grace, enable us to thrive. So that's the first thing that Christ wants his church to know. He is aware of their circumstances. He knows how hard ministry is. He is not far from them either. But then notice next, he also says he knows the church's strengths. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So this church was doing ministry in the very center of Satan's power, but they were persevering with courage and joy and doing so even after the tragic loss of one of their church members. That's who Antipas was. He was a member of the church of Pergamum. And apparently there was a particularly bad outbreak of persecution against this church sometime in the church's recent history. That persecution had cost them one of their members, Antipas, lost his life. Scriptures don't tell us how he lost his life, but we do have extra-biblical sources that tell us. If they are correct, then Antipas died by being baked in a bronze bull by the officials in Pergamum. A terrible, terrible way to die. But even with this horrific persecution bearing down against them, this church was holding fast. They continued to publicly identify as Christians. And they lived like Christians. And they witnessed like Christians. It was a remarkable church. And Christ commends them for this. In fact, this again is Christ's will for His church. See, my friends, just as Christ suffered during his earthly ministry, so too does he call his church to suffer. In fact, the scriptures say all who labor to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution of one kind or another. Just as Christ suffered, so he calls his church to suffer. Just as Christ was persecuted, so his church is called to face persecution. But, friends, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too His church is promised a resurrection from the dead at the end of time. As He was vindicated, so will His church be vindicated. And so it would seem that in the will of God, He has ordained that the church of Christ should have an existence which parallels the life of its head. Just as Christ lived and suffered and died and rose, so His church through all history and in each phase of it will live and suffer and die and rise again in victory. That's His will for His church. 
And friends, this is what keeps this church going in those very challenging times, the knowledge that there is a a Lord who is above, who has experienced everything that we have to go through, and that He was victorious, and so shall we be. This was a great church, my friends. It was a church holding fast to Christ, even in the midst of all of this, and doing so with joy. What a model for us to follow. But then as we move into verses 14 and 15, we'll find that not everything was well with this church. They had some great things going for it, but there were some struggles. Let's read these verses together. He says, but, verse 14, so everything is great on this end. However, there is something we need to talk about. He says, but I have a few things against you. Number one, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And then number two, verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this church on the whole, it was a remarkable church. I mean, persevering without compromise. But within this congregation, there were some who were not doing as well. There were some acting like Balaam. If you're not familiar with Balaam, simply know that this was a leader from Israel's past who led God's people to merge the true worship of God with the false worship of the pagan nations around them. And that included things like participating in feasts that had been offered in honor of false gods, and also lowering biblical sexual standards and uh, living as the pagans would live. That's what Balaam was like. And Christ, the head of the church, looks down at the local church of Pergamum, and he says, there are some in your congregation doing the same thing. They are seeking an accommodation between the gospel of Christ and the the belief and the lifestyle of non-Christian peoples. And then he says there were others in the church following the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicolaitans were exactly like the Balaamites of old. These were people who identified as Christians, but they sought a merger of Christian faith with non-Christian faith, and they tried to create a hybrid system. Now, friends, why, why would someone do this? Why would you want to, if you were truly a Christian, why would you want to continue identifying as a Christian, but not commit yourself fully to the demands of Christian discipleship? Why would you want to import from the outside teachings and ways of life that were at odds with the way of life established by Christ. Why would you do that? Well, friends, it's because fallen human nature is a funny thing. Above all else, fallen nature wants comfort and acceptance and ease. That's what we want. And human nature will do all kinds of things to make that possible, including rationalizing sin, reworking long-cherished principles, reinterpreting settled texts of Scripture, 
even sacrificing fundamental doctrines of the faith, all to avoid uncomfortable situations. And so, in this church, as in all churches in all times, there was a temptation for some to continue holding on to Christ because they believed in Christ, but to, to, to reduce the, the antithesis between Christianity and non-Christianity, to try to blur the line between the two so that they wouldn't stick out quite as boldly. Some were trying, whether they realized it or not, they were trying to sacrifice essential gospel truths for the sake of cultural acceptance. They were probably advocating things like this, participating in feasts in Pergamum that were dedicated to idols. In that city, everything was was related to idol worship, even their trade guilds, their civic organizations, all of it was wrapped up with idolatry. Surely there were, there were people in this church saying, look, we can be Christians and we can still participate in these feasts too. That would be okay, wouldn't it? We don't have to withdraw from that, make ourselves stick out all the more. There were probably others saying, maybe it would be okay for us to throw that you know, pinch of incense on the fire and to say, Kaisar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. We can say that and we can say Christ is Lord at the same time. I mean, aren't these phrases subject to interpretation? Can't you say Christ is Lord and Caesar is Lord at the same time? But you could mean different things by it. Besides, it's only two words. Kaisar Kurios, that's not that big a deal, is it? We're advocating declarations of allegiance to both Christ and the Caesar. That was a real temptation faced by this church. Same temptation we face here in the West today. A temptation that seems to be growing greater every year because we see more churches fall to such things every year. The gap is widening between the demands of Christian discipleship and the demands of the non-Christian culture. The two are not compatible in most areas of life. And so there's a strong temptation felt by every Christian and by every local church to try to find a way to seek a rapprochement between the two. Can we reinterpret this long-cherished doctrine? Can we rework this principle? Can we abandon this doctrine? Can we affirm this while we also affirm that? Can we find some way to do this so that we won't seem quite as odd to the prevailing culture, so that we can make life easier and more comfortable for us, so that we can get more likes and thumbs up on our social media pages? Is there something we can do to achieve this? It's faced by every church in the West, as I imagine it is in every church around the world. But friends, to align ourselves with the prevailing culture on matters in which there is no commonality between Christianity and the culture, to do that, Christ would not be glorified. You know, people would not be helped either. We might make life easier on ourselves, but we would not be helping anyone. You know what this world of ours does not need? 
It does not need local churches who just parrot everything that the majority culture already teaches. They don't need churches like that. What the world needs is an innumerable host of local churches embedded into every city and hamlet and village and neighborhood who is firm in its commitment to Christ, who is holding on without apology to the doctrines of Christ, that loves the demands of Christian discipleship and is eager to live them out in the public square, proclaim the truth of them to others, and to call others to join Christ and His church. What the world needs is an alternative community, one that doesn't suffer from the vanities and the destructive potential of the prevailing culture. That's what it needs You know, if the church is to fail in this world, my friends, if it's to fail, it's not going to be because outsiders destroyed it. If the church is to fail, it's because it destroyed itself from within. Because we felt the temptation to become like the culture and unlike Christ, and we allowed that temptation to run wild... And next thing we know, we are no different than the world around us. That is our greatest potential for ruin. Isn't it interesting here that Christ says to the church of Pergamum, I know where you dwell. You dwell in Satan's throne room. But then he doesn't say, and you know, that's a real threat to your church. You guys are are in big trouble. No. He He doesn't tell them they're in trouble for that. Even if... Every member of this church should lose their lives. They will not lose their souls. Pergamum could do nothing to this church to destroy it. All they could do is hasten their arrival to heaven. You know what can destroy the church? It's when the people who profess Christ within the church no longer believe in Christ. It's when they are no longer committed to following His ways. It's when their desire for cultural acceptance leads them to abandon all of the core doctrines of the gospel. That's when a church loses its soul, and that's when a church is destroyed. So, friends, what should, we, what should we do if we find ourselves drifting away from our commitment to Christ, from our, our commitment to the pure doctrines of the gospel? Well, Christ tells us what to do. Look at the wise counsel He offers to the church in Pergamum, verse 16. He says, Therefore, repent. You see, What was happening in the church of Pergamum, this was a moral problem. Some in the church were were going to succumb to the temptation to abandon what Christ has said so as to embrace what their culture was saying. That was a moral problem. It required a moral response, repentance. And what is repentance? Well, repentance is a change of mind and heart about the direction you're on along with a resolve to return to fidelity to Christ. That's what Christ is calling for here. He's saying, you individuals in the church who are, who are on this downgrade, you need to see that you're heading in the wrong direction. Turn around, come back, resolve to be faithful to Christ. And friends, to the entire local church, the majority of whom were being faithful, he says this, he says, church... 
Church, you must stop tolerating those who would abandon the gospel for the sake of cultural approval. He says, church, win those people back or put them out, but don't continue as you are. Don't be indifferent about it. See, my friends, as the church of Christ, we're called to love our neighbors, but not to surrender the gospel to please our non-Christian neighbors. We're called to win others to Christ for His pleasure, not to abandon Christ for the non-believer's pleasure. And Christ gives us a powerful motivation here. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that reference to that sharp two-edged sword again. Listen, the Lord has committed to us the responsibility to keep His church doctrinally and practically holy. And He tells us here, if we will not, if we abdicate our responsibility, then He will do it for us. On that last day, He will come with His sword and He will purge His church. And when that happens, it'll be too late for repentance. It'll be too late. He'll be coming back as judge. There is our motivation to be faithful to Christ, no matter what internal temptations we may feel. But then thankfully, friends, our Lord does not end on this painful note. He ends us on a positive note. Look at verse 17 now. Precious promises to those who do persevere. He says, now he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So it's obvious here these words aren't just for Pergamum. Therefore, every church in every city that finds itself in difficult circumstances. Let him hear what Christ says to all the churches. But now the the wonderful promises. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him some of the hidden manna. Now, Remember back in verse 14, the compromisers in the church were eating meat sacrificed to idols. That symbolized their desire to accommodate the Christian faith to the the faith of non-believers. Well, what Christ is saying here is, okay, to those who will forsake the idol meat, I have something even better in store for you. I have the hidden manna. It's manna that you cannot yet perceive with your five senses, but it's real. It's stored up in heaven for you. To the one who perseveres, who says no to the idol meat, I will say yes to the manna from heaven for them. It's a promise of heaven's joys, heaven's delights. It's a promise of participation in his coming kingdom. And what Christ is doing here is similar to, a, to what a parent does with, with a child on Thanksgiving Day. Okay, you, you parents, you know what, what, this, um, what this is like. Your kid comes to you middle of the day on Thanksgiving and they say, Mom, I'm hungry. And they're opening the cabinet and they're looking for something to eat. And they're picking out all the junk food because that's what they like best. right? And you have to say to your kids, listen, don't eat the junk food now, trust me, 
Just trust me, in a couple of hours, all the family's going to be here, and we're going to have our Thanksgiving feast, and it's going to be the biggest meal you've ever seen in your life. There's going to be turkey and stuffing and gravy and mashed potatoes and corn and cranberry sauce, and after we've gorged ourselves on that, then there's going to be pumpkin pie, and there's going to be apple pie, and my favorite, there's going to be chocolate pie, and we're going to eat it all before the day's over. So... Say no to the junk food now because there's a feast waiting for you in a little while. That's what Christ says to the church. Don't eat that idle meat. It'll ruin you. It'll ruin everything. Say no to it. Throw it aside. I've got the hidden manna. This is the feast that you can't imagine and it's in store for you. Just persevere. You'll have it. It'll be yours. Just hang on. That's what he says to his church. And then he makes another promise. End of verse 17. He says, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, in the Roman Empire, officials would sometimes give a person a white stone etched with the person's name on the stone. And that white stone with their name etched upon it, that was their ticket to a special banquet. So, for example, um, someone who won an Olympic competition might receive this etched white stone. And that was the victor's ticket to get to the great banquet later in the day when all the town officials would be there. Maybe some, some Roman dignitaries. That was their ticket to get in. Christ says here, to the one who conquers, I will give to him a white stone. I'm going to give to you your ticket into that kingdom. But then he adds this. He says, but a new name will be written on that stone. The new name signifying your new status when you get there. Kind of like when God changed Abram's name to Abraham because of the change in status from a a person far from God to now one with a covenant with God, he says you too will receive a new name, one that reflects your new status in that kingdom, your holy, sinless status. The fact that this name, this new name, is known only to you and to Christ also speaks of the security of it. See, it's a stone with a name that nobody can rob you of because nobody else knows what name he's given you. It's just him and you. It's secure. Your place in his kingdom, secure. It also speaks to the personal nature of the gift. It's a personalized gift. He wrote you a new name. He gave it to you, and it's just between the two of you. It's a personal welcome into his kingdom, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be enjoyed at that day. My friends, these are the promises held out to us. Finish the race without compromise. You will feast on the hidden manna. You will receive your white stone, granting you admission to that great coming feast, and you'll be given a new name chosen just by Christ for you. Now to conclude, we live in a day of compromise. You all know this. Ministries that were once stalwart defenders of the gospel have now caved to the prevailing culture. 
And they will continue to do so until the gospel is utterly lost from their midst. Friends, we must not follow that path. We must follow the path laid out by Christ. He is Lord of all. He is head of the church. He has told us what he wants us to do. He wants us to hold fast to him, to his doctrines, to his ethical demands. He wants us to be bold in our witness, winsome in our engagement, and faithful right to the very end. Friends, may the Lord find us faithful that we may receive that manna and get that white stone in our hands. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for this important letter from your son to the church of Pergamum, and it speaks to all churches in all ages. Lord, we recognize that the greatest threat to us is not on the outside, it's on the inside. It's the temptation that we feel to seek acceptance from the prevailing culture, to seek ease and affirmation from those who who do not love you. Help us, Lord, to resist that temptation. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to learn how to love our neighbors in such a way that we're willing to share the gospel with our neighbors, to call them to join you, to find a better life in you rather than us leaving you to follow them. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.